In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. William Faulkner's stories, maybe my favorite, is As I Lay Dying. It's about a family of dirt-poor Mississippi country people named Bundren. Poor white trash is what people called them. Addie Bundren dies. Her husband, Ants, is lazy and not smart. They have five children, Carl, Darrell, Dewey Dell, who was 17 and pregnant, Vardaman, and Jewel, who, unknown to Ants, is actually Reverend Whitefield's son. Before Addie dies, she makes Ants promise that he will bury her in Jefferson, her hometown on the other side of the river. The story is tragic and comic. The Bundrens lay Addie in a coffin that Cash built. They load her on a wagon and they set out for Jefferson across the river. But it's been raining for days. The rising river washes out the bridge. Ants doesn't have the sense to know not to try to ford a flooding river. The wagon overturns midstream and the mules drown. Cash breaks his leg and they almost lose Addie's body downstream. It takes eight days to get to Jefferson. There is a bad smell. Buzzards follow them everywhere and try to steal the body. Faulkner makes you laugh and feel guilty for laughing. Faulkner's people, Addie, Ants, and all the rest live in a world of Faulkner's making. They and their world are his creation and they are made after his own image. They cannot see or sense William Faulkner, their creator. Darrell, who is a bit of a thinker, might guess that they live in a world of someone else's making, which is a world of fire and flood, and for them, of great misfortune. Within Faulkner's world, which they do not realize is Faulkner's world, it's just the universe they take for granted, they have their lives to live. They make their own decisions and reap the benefits, or more often, pay the consequences. Their author gave them freedom of will. If someone in the story were to suggest that they were all the creation of a greater mind, most would wonder what on earth he meant. What evidence was there of this greater mind's existence? If after they drag themselves exhausted and half dead out of the swollen river, catch Cash speechless for the pain in his leg, as buzzards circled overhead and dead mules washed on down towards the Gulf of Mexico, if they were to stop and shake their fist at the gray skies and demand to know why their lives were so wretched, and what kind of author would have prepared such pain and indignity for the works of his own hand, they would have received no answer from their author. If they became religious and prayed to their creator for guidance, strength, and help to meet their trials, who knows whether they would receive any nudging that they could discern from their author's hands. And yet every move they made, every step they took, 
Every place they saw, every moment they lived was a move in him, a step with him, a place of his making prepared for them, a moment alive in his hands. In him they live and move and have their being. They could not know except by faith that he loved them. They could not know except by faith that he helped them. They could not know except by faith that he forgave them again and again their ignorance and sin against each other and against him. And of course only God and William Faulkner would know if William Faulkner was worthy of such faith in the people that he created. But let's suppose that he, the author, did love his world. And that he decided to enter the world of his own making by writing himself into the story in an epiphany. Perhaps one day he appeared from out of a burning bush to Darl or Dewey Dell and said, I am Faulkner and I made you. And then suppose he wrote himself apart as a man in his own world. Addie's son, but no father. The neighbors could suspect Reverend Whitefield if they would. But a son was born to Addie, and he grew up good and strong. And he loved the people, ignorant and stupid and mean as they sometimes were. And he loved them because he made them. They were his. And he taught them. He taught them about the author. And he showed them how to live. And they loved him, but sometimes they hated him for it too. And suppose he kept for himself his author's power. He could write new sight for the blind and did. He could speak to Addie in her box and say, come out, and out she came. Poetic license. And suppose that one day this son took Darl and Cash and Jewel and went to Arkansas to the mountains to commune with the author himself, Faulkner the creature calling upon Faulkner the creator. And as he suddenly, as he prayed, the appearance of his countenance was altered and his raiment became dazzling white. And the three boys were sleepy but stayed up and saw their brother transfigured. And a dark cloud moved in and surrounded them, and they were terrified, and a voice from the cloud spoke, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When we suppose like this, we're supposing like Christians. And we can now suppose that we are, we are, indeed, living in a story that's written by someone else. And if we searched all over the world to the depths of the earth and the farthest reaches of the universe, we would see him nowhere and find him everywhere. Not only in the fresh green grass on sunshine, sunshiny days with this clear blue sky, but also in the winter fog and in the rocky, barren places, in the desert, the wind, the rain, the darkness, as well as the light. And then we can infer that while we here are only a few characters in a worldwide cast of billions, and there's no telling whether in the plot that we're a part of our role is central or peripheral, that doesn't matter because we are important to the author who is involved 
in every detail, and he personally calls us all by name. And maybe we can understand how, from our present point of view, there will naturally be some variance of opinion about the author, who he is or she is, and what he has in mind or she has in mind, or what's in store for us. And maybe we can understand in some moments why some are inclined to question the author's existence or the author's motives in writing a story in which things so often happen in dreadful and confusing ways. But then at other moments, we catch a vision of the grand sweep of things and we see how the pieces are coming together and how the story as a whole can enter into our hearts with all their sorrow and their joy. And even in the sorrow, we can see that it is good because we are believers. Whether we consider ourselves true believers or tentative ones or just honest seekers, we can see the significance of St. Paul's words. Now we see as though through a glass darkly, but only then face to face. Because from where we stand within this author's world, we cannot know his mind exactly. All the things we sometimes want to know about why or how come or what will happen next or even to some extent what we're supposed to do right, right now, this afternoon. They have their perfect and infallible answers in a world which is just beyond our reach. But at the same time, the truth that the author has involved himself in our world, with our story, even to the point of becoming a creature himself, means that we are never totally in the dark. That we can count on. Paul, who had an unusual encounter with the author on a country road, could claim to know a great deal about what the author has in mind, but he didn't claim to know it all or to have a perfect grasp of it. These are his inspired words. Our knowledge is imperfect. Our prophecy is imperfect. And so until the perfect comes, until our knowledge is complete, until we see the great epiphany with our own eyes face to face, there is only one perfect thing. And when we have it, we have the spirit of the author himself. The perfect thing is patient and kind. It is not irritable or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It believes, bears, endures, and hopes in all things. We Christians can, by reason of our faith, walk in this uncertain life sure of two things. One is that our lives are part of a great story that has a beginning, it has a meaning, but it doesn't have an end. And its deepest mystery is the love of the author for his creatures, the creatures of his own imagination and with whom he chose to dwell. And the other is that when we're confused or lost or do not know which way we should turn, there is a compass 
which unfailingly points us to the way in which the writer of this story would choose to have us go. And its name is love, and it faileth never.